Hey guys, this is Greg Edwards, and if you love me on Show Me the Meaning, I got some sweet shit coming to you soon, man. I got a new podcast out called Black Stage. It's all about stand-up comedy. It's all about my life as a stand-up comedian, and we're going to be doing some dope interviews. We're going to be interviewing the best comedians in L.A., people that you've seen on Conan, Jimmy Fallon, MTV, all over the place, and I'm doing it with one of my favorite comedians, Brad. Let's say what's up, Brad. What's up, guys? Hey, so check it out. You can check us out in the description below. Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning and hail Paimon! <laughs> My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Greg. Hey, what's up? Happy birthday, Ryan. Oh, oh happy you. birthday to Ryan. <laughs> oh, God. And, uh, and Austin. <laughs> ah, nice, that scared nice, the shit out of me. Nice. <laughs> My, My balls tingled a little bit. <sighs> All right, so today we are breaking down the 2018 film Hereditary, written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Tony Collette, Gabriel Brin, Brian, I don't know, Millie Shapiro, and Alex Wolf. But before we get into our first impressions, uh, Greg is actually starting a podcast that's actually launching today so if you guys want to greg tell us about it yeah yeah um look you guys know me um i'm a comedian i'm all about stand-up so uh, i got this new podcast called black stage with me and my buddy bradless and it's just all about stand-up comedy it's just going to tell you about the world of stand-up comedy in los angeles and california and i'm just going to be interviewing a bunch of hilarious comedians we're just going to talk to talk about comedy anything you want to know about comedy hit us up we'll answer your questions and we're just going to just be talking comedy shop and whatever's going on in the world that's related to comedy. It's really hilarious, super fun, hour long. Check us out. Who's your Black first Stage. guest? Our first guest, I mean, I think we're going to- We're actually uh, launching the, three episodes. Yeah, so we're going to have Leah Kajanian, uh, just one with me and Brad, let's talking about our origin story in, in comedy, and a hilarious comedian named Kevin Kamia, who's op who's the opener for uh, the hilarious Ali Wong. So okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really good podcast. Hope you guys like it and check it out. Cool. So we're going to put links in the description so you can check out uh, Black Stage. And uh, yeah, so we're excited to uh, have it be part of the Wisecrack Podcast Network. Cool. All right. All right. So, guys, let's start talking about this movie, Hereditary. Uh, let's start with first impressions. Let's start with Ryan. Ryan, what do you think about this movie? Well, I'm conflicted about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, Because on one hand, I mean, it has some of those solid scenes and moments yeah. in a movie that you that really are compelling and jaw dropping I'd say. And then um and and the reason I'm conflicted is that, you know, as an independent filmmaker who I want more movies like this to exist. People taking really big chances, ambitious, low budget, you know, or mid budget movie, you know, but uh but it was all over the place in a good way and had, you know, one auteur's imagination behind it. However, I would say my main complaint is that it could have been way better, I feel like. I think that's kind of a lame complaint in a lot of movies. Like, <laughs> who are you to say it could be better? But yeah. I feel like they had this seed of an idea, and they set up the mood so well, because the, the mood's a big part of this movie. But then kind of once, I guess we can give away this the big spoiler of the movie, that the you know, the kid, once the kid dies, once the kid's head falls off, which was so awesome, Pretty much for the next 45 minutes, kind of I feel like they didn't really do much else to elevate it. And then 
and I kind of was like, I don't really know if I like this movie at some point. But then the last two minutes of the movie brings it all back home True. when the oh, cult okay. with Paimon comes out of nowhere. <laughs> to me, made it uh, at least I was like, wow, I didn't see that coming, and that was awesome. And I, w- I wish there was more. It's of that interesting. Throughout Most the of the movie. criticisms I've heard are about the end. People not like. I know the people ending. don't like the ending, but I'm the exact opposite. I mean, that yeah. was some. That was a ballsy ending that I liked a lot. You know, but it kind of at the end of the day, I feel like this movie's not about much. It's kind of a mood piece. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I didn't really come away like really thinking about a lot. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I think that I wish I want him to up his game in the next one and really go relentless the whole time. I want kids' heads falling off the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Greg. What about you? Um, look. Uh, before I saw the movie, all my friends. Uh, comedians and like direct people that's in Hollywood, well, low budget Hollywood. Uh, they saw it and I was like, "Yo, this is the scariest movie I've seen in a long time." So I was like, I was up in the ante of it for just for myself to think it was gonna be scary. Wasn't scared at all. I wasn't scared Ooh. at all. Uh, when the girl's head got chopped off, I thought it was great seeing the flies all on it. Uh, I am a sucker for a witch movie. I like witch movies. I like the craft. I like all that <laughs> shit. Uh, I've dated a witch before. Don't do it, guys. Dangerous. Uh, but I, I'm like with Ryan. I think it could have been. I think it could have been better. Uh, I think it was very slow in the middle. Uh, I love the ending. I love the whole cult scene and you know the whole Jesus and the, the staff and the head cut off and everybody's bowing and like all white and shit. I dug that, but it was kind of. Kind of lame in the middle. I thought um, what acting. Does scare you? Like, um, yeah. What's a what, scary movie? What's a scary movie? It it scares the okay. shit out of me. Clowns the, the and even the new one. The nah, remake? the new one didn't scare me that much. Okay. Old it, old yeah. Stephen King still scares the shit out of me. Okay. Uh, but nah, that's, that's is it because scary. you were young when you saw it? No, nah, I watched the regular it recently. Like, and I tried to be scared. Like, I watched it like two in the morning with the with the window <laughs> shades open, <laughs> all dark, and it, it still scared the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. All right, Austin, what about you, man? Yeah, I mean, I agree with bits of both of what was what was just said. I agree with Ryan that I, I don't want to shit on independent filmmakers because we need more of this. We need more big, bold, auteur, visionary filmmakers that are doing cool shit. And we need people to fund them for that so that we don't just endlessly get IP reproductions and franchise films. Let You have to make a billion dollars. So... With that said, I feel a little bit bad criticizing this film because at the same time, I I want more of this. I want more of this. But my criticism is exactly what Jared hinted at. It's the ending. For me, I thought it just kind of cheapened what was otherwise a very interesting psychological tale on hereditary tendencies and and kind of lineage. And it kind of almost had like this Greek drama, like – fate mixed with freedom kind of thrown together and and I thought that was so fascinating and suspenseful and uh, a really interesting mind fuck that for some reason then they justify it and rationalize it with this like that there are these real forces and shit that are behind it all which to me kind of cheapened the mystery a little bit but it also made me think of another film where the ending kind of came out of nowhere, which was Kill List. Did you guys see Kill List? Oh, yeah. Oh, dude. Me and Ryan, I think we saw that together, and I hated the shit out of that movie. But you know how yeah. the ending, kind of like this weird pagan, occultist, ritual shit just seems to Absolutely. come out of nowhere? It, like, yeah, dude, I know what you mean. And, yeah. And, and that... for me, it kind of, I was like, this movie's batshit crazy, and it kind of ruined the rest of Kill List for me, which I was totally vibing with until that part came. And then I was like, eh, I don't know. So it was kind of see. I hate my him. other problem I, with Kill List is I didn't see it with uh, subtitles, which I needed. 
Yeah, I hated every second of Kill List. But I, I, I haven't question... been living in the I haven't been living in the UK for years. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I do have a question, Austin. Um, what's your thoughts on Rosemary's Baby? Because to me, that's like the movie yeah. that has the most the most similar through line to this movie yes. in the sense that I mean that also has a satanic cult come it, out of nowhere at the end. And literally, the last lines are "Hail Satan, Hail Payment." I mean, right. There's no way this is an accident. Exactly. So what? what and to, is that a masterful? Uh, stroke at the end of that Polanski movie or is or did that also take you out when that happened or I think I like that because it was more orig- original whereas this seems derivative because Rosemary baby Rosemary's baby exists exactly and because it was trying to sort of channel this this almost like obsession that people have with the occult and with spirits and things like that so I felt like it would have been much more interesting this is why I think Baba Duke was really interesting because it was clearly a metaphor about like depression and grief and anxiety and stuff like that right and why I think a film like um, The Witch was more interesting and why I think It Follows is fucking genius because they just seem to be a little bit more consistent in either the metaphor or the sort of narrative that they're presenting whereas this one was kind of derivative of all of that stuff and I get it art borrows and steals and that's fine but i don't know it just didn't quite just didn't quite work for me tonally the shift didn't it it kind of jarred me and because of that it made me question my enjoyment of the rest of the film and i was like oh fuck like i i was into this you know austin do do you i heard you say something like uh people are so obsessed with the cults and and spirits and shit do you feel like people are like more obsessed now like in our modern time right now that people are obsessed with like witchcraft and you know, fucking crystals, and I see crystals everywhere <laughs> in L.A. I think it's actually really prevalent because of, and I don't want to just use this as, like, some bullshit, like, signaling term, but I think it's because of our obsession with the way that capitalism is sort of like the the law of the market, which is kind of like our god today, that if you input something, you're going to get rewarded, right? And I think that, like, our obsession with the occult is a sort of just... Um, spiritualization of economic desires. You know, it's like the secret was that text that was so popular, right? Like positive thinking and you're going to get it back. The visualize, visualize and you're going to get it. Yeah. Prosperity gospel is popular. All of these things, if you look at them, the commonality is that supposedly you put something in, you invest, and you're going to get a return on that investment. So I think it's really ultimately dictated by a capitalist logic. Hmm. All right. So I, similar to Austin, I like pieces of basically what everyone else is saying. Um, There are definitely times in this movie where I was super captivated. There are times where I was really uneasy. But for every moment where I was, you know, like really tensed up and I really felt like the directorial choices were really capturing me and working, there was like 15 minutes of like, wait, is this a family drama now? Or, you know, uh, (laughs) wait, like, where is this going? People just looking off in the distance in rooms of houses and Yeah, but overall, I I like this movie. Uh, I mean, I think it takes a lot of risks. I mean, Toni Collette, you know, put it all on the line for this movie, and she did a great job. And uh, I think there are a lot of, like, fresh-faced actors that do really good. I mean, Alex Wolfe, who plays Peter... Uh, I mean, the whole ending, whether you like it or not, I think, you know, most people who don't like the ending don't like it because of the writing. But his uh, the expression on his face when he's in school, after the accident and at the end when he is payment, I mean, he doesn't say anything, but his face says a lot. And so I think that overall, there's a lot of great performances in this movie. I think when it works, it works. When it doesn't, it's certainly not cringy. It's just maybe slightly a little bit slower. But ultimately, I wasn't like bored you know, during the movie. The one the one thing I would say is I, I disagree with Austin that the whole hereditary, uh, like there was an ambiguity between is this a, like a, a real, real is, an actual realization of occult powers or is this some sort of psychological phenomenon? 
I think that that's actually uh, the psychological element is dispelled a lot earlier in the film. But we'll get to that a little bit later. But first, let's go into a recap. So, middle-aged mother Annie is mourning the death of her estranged mother when bizarre things start happening. Her daughter Charlie sleeps in the treehouse in freezing temperatures and notices people awkwardly staring at her. One night, Charlie's brother Peter takes Charlie to a high school party at Annie's request. Charlie has an allergic reaction to a slice of cake, ending in a fatal accident that decapitates her. As the family mourns their loss, Annie starts sleeping in the treehouse and going to movies late at night, while Peter starts having reactions similar to Charlie's. On her way to a therapy group, Annie befriends Joan, a sympathetic woman who also lost a son. Tensions rise at dinner as Annie and Peter blame each other for Charlie's death. Next day, Annie runs into Joan, who tells her that she has found a way to communicate with her son from beyond the grave and that it has completely healed her grief. Annie is thrown into shock when Joan shows her the seance process. Joni then gives Annie the materials needed to do the seance in her own home. Annie then gathers the family to perform the seance and communicate with Charlie. Peter is frightened by Annie's mania and her husband Steve begs her to stop. At school, Peter starts seeing unsettling things like an unfamiliar reflection of himself in the mirror and Joan yelling at him from across the street. Annie stops by Joan's where a seance surrounding Peter is revealed. Annie races home to find a book of incantations among her mother's belongings. The book details the ritual summoning of a demon called King Payman and his plan or and the details required to possess a boy. Annie also finds a photo album revealing that Joan and her mother were friends. She goes to the attic to find her mother's headless corpse decomposing in the attic. Feeling a demonic presence, Peter briefly loses consciousness and breaks his own nose at school. Meanwhile, thinking that she's found a way to lift the curse of their off their household, Annie burns Charlie's sketchbook, but in doing so, burns her husband Steve alive. Peter returns home and is pursued by his possessed mother. He is then brought to the attic, where a, another seance is occurring. Then Peter jumps out the window and is brought to the clubhouse, where his mother, Joan, and his grandma's creepy friends are all worshipping him as Payman Incarnate. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, guys, so let's talk about the ending. Most people are pretty disappointed with it. Or do we want to just take a sentence to talk about what happened? Like, what happens in this movie? Yeah. So we learn at the end that there, that the grandma was part of this cult that's trying to bring this demon payment back. And then once we learn all these details, everything that happens early in the movie that seems kind of eerie and mysterious is recontextualized. So at the beginning, Charlie says that grandma wanted her to be a boy. And we later find out that's because payment, the demon prefers boys or he can only manifest himself entirely if it's within a host body that is a boy. So we see Charlie cutting off bird heads. And so I guess we're meant to believe that Charlie this whole time is the demon because like she's cutting off the bird heads to use for the seance later but she's not like really aware of this demonic presence right in her, her. It's her, more her like grandma schizo- has kind of taken it under her wing to groom her right right yeah so during the funeral there's like this creepy guy smiling at charlie at first it kind of looks like he's some weird pedo but <laughs> it's because pedo. it's because like people are seeing her and she's like oh there's payment you know there's the person that is uh our our demon lord is is possessing 
Um, then, like, ser- similarly, a mysterious woman waves at Charlie. Also, are we meant to believe that her dying was all part of the plan? I found it interesting that there's that short shot of, like, the pole that Charlie's head got cut off from has the demonic symbol on it. Yeah. So yeah. that's crazy. That Yeah, how the fuck did they swing that? How did they swing that? I don't know. I, Fate, I, motherfuckers. I, 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 I'd like to, t- to make a comment that, that they really did a master stroke of bait and switch marketing on this movie you know because you really they marketed it like it's going to be the omen or something and the little girl's the main character the creepy main girl and so when that girl gets her head cut off you're like what the fuck what's the rest of this movie going to be you know so good job marketing team of hereditary i just wanted to point that out see i've actually had a couple people on twitter tell me that they were disappointed with the marketing because they didn't like the bait and switch well, yeah. I can see that. Of course, but, yeah. I mean, but I, I thought it was like, I mean, it's a pretty amazing scene. I and mean, that's no matter why what, it has such a low audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it has. I think that's due to a lot more than just that. Like what? Like the rest of the movie being fucking weird. And I mean, it's like, it's <laughs> right, not right, a, but it's they, not but, a very right, accessible right, they, movie. They, they, we can they, all they, agree on that, right? It's not accessible. Yeah, it's killing it. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't. It's not. Not an accessible like. Oh, it's like, like one of those things. If you, straightforward if the, if, the market, story. if the marketing team was bringing in fans of The Omen or fans of Insidious or something like that, and then you get something that's much more of a bit of an art house, eerie family drama with some occult overtones and a very underwhelming ending, then yeah, people are going to be pissed <laughs> off. Uh, yeah, l- 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 let me. That's yeah, perfect it, summary. It, it's more yeah. like like I do think that there was a ton of overhype about the movie. People were saying stuff like scariest movie since The Exorcist. Like, no what? fucking Get way. Here, yeah, and, but but I. I all I'm saying is just in the sense of what you thought the movie was going to be about and then what it ended up being about, two totally different things, but I thought in a cool way. But uh, but yeah, anyway, keep going. Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess we can just keep talking about what happens. I mean, so in... I don't know how much of this is obvious for people who have seen the movie, but so uh, I think one of the most telling scenes and more to Austin's point about it possibly being about hereditary disorders or mental disorders or like how mental illness can plague a bloodline. So uh, during the part where Annie is at like the uh, the support group, mm-hmm. she says that her grandmother had disassoci- disassociative identity disorder. And this is when something really ha- interesting happens because you want to say, OK, did she really have disassociative identity disorder or is it just a demon or is she like a demoness or something like that? And then she said Annie's dad died of starvation because he had psychotic depression and he starved himself. So once again, is this just mental illness plaguing the family? Or did he sense that his mom was or his wife was trying to have payment manifest himself in him, so he just killed himself? And then her older brother was schizophrenic and hanged himself and said that uh, his grandma was trying to put voices in him. So once again, was he schizophrenic or is this more of the occult coming in? And, um, you know, all of this is then recontextualized as like, okay, no, this is probably I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think all those deaths were meant to believe probably were not. Uh, psychological issues and probably were can be explained by you know this cult that yes the, that's that how that's what I think that you're right. supposed to think at the end of the movie yeah. yeah so so the so correct me if I'm wrong Austin but your thing is that you were saying that up until the ending you thought that it was really interesting because you're constantly asking yourself are people experiencing these things because they have some sort of a mental disorder or is it that there's actually a cult happening and you're saying that there was a tension of push and pull that was kind of killed in the ending because they made it too overt that it was actual real 
I agree with you that it wasn't solely in the final two minutes. It, you start to see the cracks in that narrative, and it starts to become more apparent that, okay, this is just a sort of, like, spirituality, demon possession-y kind of story uh, quite a bit earlier on. But I like ambiguity. And as somebody who comes from a family that has mental illness, my grandmother was paranoid schizophrenic, and I think in her among her sisters, I think somebody else was paranoid schizophrenic. And so... I've seen it firsthand, I've experienced it, and it's something that I find to be grippingly terrifying because it's something beyond my control. And as someone who's a philosopher, even though philosophy for me isn't about control, it's more about opening up potentiality, I'm really interested in this idea of being able to wrestle with stuff. And schizophrenia, mental illness is something that almost exceeds my ability to even wrestle. It's something that is like the real in in a sense it's pure excess it's it just exists outside of my linguistic and social and religious and political or whatever frameworks and so and i've seen other things too like i had a buddy in college that i lived with who was diabetic and he went into like a diabetic coma at one point and he was acting like he was fucking demon possessed you know it was like he wasn't there there was no life in his eyes he was like foaming at the mouth he was growling and like when we tried to wake him up it was like he was like grasping for the air it was the weirdest fucking thing but it was cuz his blood sugar levels got so low and i remember being grippingly terrified at that point because i didn't understand what was going on and for me that's where horror comes from that's where that's what terrifies me. It's the unexplainable elements of human psych psyche and human psychology. And um, when you then try to say, ah, oh, it's just demons behind the, the screen, I'm like, well, that shit doesn't freak me out as much. Well, what about you guys, uh, Greg, Ryan? Did you, at, When you were watching the movie, did you ever say to yourself, oh, is maybe this is all just mental illness? I – well, no, I, I definitely – throughout the film, it went back and forth – at least, especially for Tony Collette's character, but there was enough to where by the end of it, see, I'm like Austin, where where I, I do think I agree with him that it does cheapen the movie, the very the final end of the movie. But I like the complete to me out of nowhereness. It, it offsets it. The batshit insanity of it makes it to where it's like, all right, this totally un, undercuts a lot of the tension beforehand, you know, or at least the ambiguity, you know, it, it you basically, you're giving it a very clear message. It's very similar to like the end of cabin in the woods, you know, where basically all the shit's happening and then you get it contextualized. Oh, it's giant space demons. Okay, sure. You know, so here's my. And I like that, but I get why Austin wouldn't like it. I think they set it up for part two too, right? You don't think it's gonna be a hereditary too? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, if if, if, if it crosses a, <laughs> if it cross if it crosses a certain threshold yeah. of box office, of course they're going. I mean, it to. was a ten million dollar budget, and it's already made like sixty five or seventy million. That's a pretty good oh, return yeah. on investment. There you go. If it gets Probably over two, million, two or three, there's gonna be like five of them. Guaranteed, there's a second hereditary seven. <laughs> yeah. So the. Let's bring this back to Rosemary's Baby because we've been talking about the similarities in this movie. But one thing that I think Rosemary's Baby did better than this movie that actually allows for the ambiguity to work better in Rosemary's Baby is that in Rosemary's Baby, it is through a single perspective. We are only with Rosemary. We never see Rosemary like, like those old people who are the Satanists. We never see what they're doing in the other room. We never see what uh, Nick Cassavet or John Cassavetes' character, her husband, we never see what he's doing when he's at work or we never, it's all, we, we're always there with Rosemary. So in this movie, uh, 
not only are we seeing certain scenes through Tony Collette's point of view, we're seeing certain, or basically it's an ensemble. It's through, we're, we're always alone with certain members of the family. Now, this works to an extent because you could say that, you know, uh, like to Austin's point, if it is a movie that is about hereditary disorders, or at least that's an element that they're playing with, then it would be reasonable to say, all right, well, then even though they're all having similar apparitions or being haunted by similar things. And another interesting choice that they make is that the father doesn't ever see anything strange. And you could say, all right, well, he's not blood related to Annie. So, you know, it would make sense that he's not seeing any demons. Um, but my problem with this is this all falls apart the at the point, the second time that Annie goes to Joan's house that's when that's when the ambiguity dies for me because that's when the film does something that actually seems quite subtle but is actually a pretty radical shift in perspective and that's when so you know she's knocking on the door she's like Joan Joan and Joan's not home and then she walks away and then the camera shows us the inside of Joan's apartment and that there's like a, a seance going on with a picture of Peter in the middle yeah so it, at that point, none of the characters are seeing that. That is the camera giving the audience a piece of privileged information. So that's basically just the camera showing us objective truth there because there is no subjectivity. Right. And so that's when kind of the movie fell apart for me because then it's just like, okay, you just killed – you killed the ambiguity. And I, I understand why they did that. They, You know, it was a, a moment of tension, but I can't – I mean, in my personal opinion, I can't overstate the importance of perspective, especially in a horror movie. And even though I think that that probably people, you know, didn't throw their hands up in the air and say, fuck this movie after that shot. I think it actually does affect people pretty subconsciously. Yeah, yeah. Kind of this weight. You're like, oh, that explains oh. all this shit. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. If uh, she's not actually seeing it because we don't she doesn't see it through the door. I mean, right. the door is like covered, you know, like this is literally just the camera. Saying, just for hey, the audience. audience this say, is what's oh, happening. Shit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that was a bad choice. I think it was a choice. I don't think it was a bad choice. It was a strong choice. They uh, had to move it along. Right, I mean, yeah, it was so yeah. boring. In the, I mean, I, I want not boring, but just so slow in the middle of it, you know. And and I feel like with all the details, you know, with the books, the the necklaces, we all knew it was witchcraft going on uh, the whole time. I think that just uh, just secured our point that you know it just made us think like, oh, okay, this is for sure what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think that a lot of movies like to have that rug pulled out from under you, you know, with like, and it might be like, oh, it wasn't, uh, it was, wasn't demon. It was all, because, you know, like, it, even it, all of this family history with mental disorders is all just kind of packaged into that uh, support group scene. So, I, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, you know, they'll pull the rug out from under us and say, oh, no, it wasn't a cult. Remember the support group scene where, you know, so I thought that that was a possibility, but, um, well, and also there's something interesting with the, the persistent theme of her sleepwalking, right? Which also makes me wonder during certain elements, is any of this real? Like the bit when she's pulling on her son's head, you're like, wait, was she actually pulling on his head? Was he dreaming? What's going on here? Was she actually sleepwalking? Is she actually not sleepwalking? Is there some sort of spiritual battle going on? And then when she tries to perform the seance and everyone's looking at her funny, is this all made up? Is this all some sleepwalking fantasy? And then we're going to realize that she's not there. I thought that that ambiguity was really nice and it kept me unsettled and it kept me confused um and i just kind of wish it would have maintained that tension yeah I th there are a lot of unanswered questions still so like do we know who actually dug up the grandma's grave right or or like who burned the husband 
like was it a spiritual thing or like why she threw why the book? was he burned or yeah. was she sleepwalking and she actually burned him or did something else happen right like i don't know i feel like it it's answered i mean who dug up the grave that's the cult right I think well, that's or that it's also the husband right. brings or steve brings up it's like oh so what have you really been doing when you've been going to the movies right well and, so and it, was it she really her. going to that support group or was that all some bullshit sleepwalking fantasy uh, I think yeah. we're meant to think she really was going. I think we're meant to think that that she that she was kind of a naive participant in this um, occultist game, but I don't know that I like that idea as much. And and so we're also meant to believe that when she tried to when she was sleepwalking, quote sleepwalking. I don't really know how we're supposed to read the sleepwalking. She doused her kids in paint thinner and was about to blow um, them up. Yeah, that's. I guess we're meant to believe because on some level she knew that her mother was trying to turn them into demons on some subconscious level. Maybe. Right? Yeah, yeah it's some what sort of counter Oh, counter that's tendency. how you took that? As a, as a subconscious preventative suicide? Uh, yeah. Murder? I, I mean, but I, I don't, I'm not convinced. See, I, I took it more as of she is blood-related to this occultish person and somehow it's rubbed off through the genes somehow oh, kind of okay. hereditary wise and so it's like it's just in her but yeah it could be that that's too. a very that's a big stretch but i agree with you jared about the it, they definitely could have had a way better more artful reveal through the door thing you know and instead of just the her leaving and then the door well, shut. well okay real quick let me ask you this so it you're saying been... that you you don't like it because it kind of reduces the subjective element and it makes it more objective but don't you think the opening shot kind of already sets that up with you have this miniature house and this camera that is outside it and it zooms into the the sort of side of the bedroom then gabriel byrne walks in what's the son's name again peter uh peter yeah so walks into peter's bedroom and then all of a sudden it comes to life, and you never pull back from that. So it's almost as though the entire story takes place within this miniature world come to life, which means the whole thing is some sort of objective, faded pulling of strings. Well, yeah. What do y'all? Yeah. What do y'all make of that fucking house shot? What do you? And it's think? never yeah, so alluded I, to I, again. I it never pulls back. It never. Yeah. The, it's never hinted at again, except for maybe in like a micro form. Throughout. Well, I mean, she, she is making little tiny things throughout right. the movie. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's weird. I never really kind of, I never took that as literally as that we're seeing the movie from an objective perspective. I honestly, at the time, and I mean, what you're saying definitely makes sense, Austin. But at the time, I was just thinking, oh, this is just kind of an artsy way to start a movie and kind of blend it with, you know, a a visual motif that is relevant to the character of Annie, who's like the artist that's making miniatures of her life. You know, yeah, so let's talk about the, the miniatures or the dioramas or whatever you want to call them. Um, so I think there's a couple ways to read this. The one that's obvious is that uh, just as Annie is kind of making these like Barbie doll puppet kind of things, basically the whole family unit is basically just a puppet of this cult. You know, the cult is basically playing Barbie or play, or like setting up this family life. Like, I mean, they, they even set up the death of her daughter. You know, so it's like she thinks that she's in control of her life or, you know, is trying to convince herself that she has some control by doing the art diorama. But in reality, she's actually just uh, a puppet on strings as well. But I, I don't know, like the other the thing that I like, I, I mean, I agree that it 
the title and the dioramas would have been probably more meaningful if there was more ambiguity as to whether it was an occult thing going on or a psychological thing going on. But I think that, you know, because the movie does have all those scenes of just feeling like a domestic drama, I kind of think that, you know, there you could say that the movie is just about just it's hard to build a family it's just about domestic settings it's about how uh you know just as something like an occult tradition can be part of your family so too can like hereditary disorders you know like thwart your efforts to create the perfect family life to you know yeah. create a manicured kind of like dollhouse reality you know like no matter what you do no matter how perfect you try to make the life no matter what choices you make there is an element of hereditary disorders or an element of blood that is always going to thwart your efforts to make a good life for your family. I think that's the, a good articulated version of the vibe that they were going for. In this movie. <laughs> Did you guys ever fuck with Ouija boards? Yeah, kids? I fucked with Ouija boards. Oh, please tell. Did, no, I, oh, no, you I, didn't? I, ne never, never. Ryan? I, well, I was always the one saying it was bullshit the whole time, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. But it mainly because you know I heard that from like my parents and stuff, uh -huh. you know. And so, so nothing ever happened. Well, no, we do it and stuff. And then I, but I, after saying it was bullshit, but be like, let's still do it. And then I'd be the one like that was secretly guiding it wherever <laughs> I wanted to say. It, you know? <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Greg, did you not fuck with it because your dad's a pastor, so you believed that there was real shit that you would unleash if you engaged? I mean, I had like, cause I, I mean, I was always in church and shit, but I wasn't really deep in it. I mean, I just, something inside of me was just like, don't fuck with this. Like, <laughs> don't fuck with this witch shit. Cause it was just, it was just scary. Yeah. Like I, I like I grew up in Virginia and I, I saw like weird, like growing up around that like Civil War shit. Like, you know, uh -oh. you can see. There's a lot saw, of ghosts I've around there. I've seen ghosts, dog. I've seen <laughs> ghosts. You know, some creepy shit like up in Williamsburg. Uh, so like I just never wanted to like, I don't want to open up a gate that I can't close, you know what I mean? Dude, I was I was too scared to do Bloody Mary in the mirror when I was a kid. Oh, dude, yeah. Why fuck with that? Why fuck with that? I'm still yeah. scared to do Bloody Mary in a mirror. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Dude, my mom, because I, I had a similar upbringing, I guess, as you, Greg, you know, my, my, my mom was, like, so Catholic and so, like, she, she would see... She even to this day she she asked me she goes Ryan you're not gonna see the tra I saw the trailer for that movie Hereditary you're not gonna go see that are you <laughs> like any movie that had any kind of just weird scary occult witchy stuff you know there's moms don't like that stuff uh, they don't uh, like evil but I fucking love it oh I I think Jared hit on something that is there's something lovely and tragic about the family drama that's unfolding in this story right and it is this tension between are you or to what extent are you free, even under these conditions that seem to determine or predestine almost your path, right? Like if your parents are, uh, you know, schizophrenic or grandparents are schizophrenic or do they have DID or whatever, uh, how, how does that impinge upon your life? And then when tragedy befalls your family – how does that affect you? And I mean, one of the things that this film really sort of displayed to me, I remember it was it was the dinner scene when it's Peter, um, the mom, and then Gabriel Byrne are sitting there. And I, I got like an overwhelming sense of grief for Gabriel Byrne sitting there kind of seemingly 
almost out of control. He he's there's nothing he can do. You can see at times he's trying to be like the man, right? He's like that's enough, right? And he's trying to stop this fight between the child and the mother and there's a serious tension there that the mother has always resented the child and then the son has always resented the mother and so there's this constant sniping between them and there was something so interesting about how do you deal in a in a family situation with grief at the same time while dealing with this weird-ass fucking occultish pressure where a demon is trying to inhabit your children's bodies, you know? And, and I think there was something really kind of interesting in that that really did affect me quite a bit. And those scenes are good. Very Maybe good. Maybe Charlie should have hit the weed. Maybe she, she should have hit the weed before the chocolate, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Agreed. You know, actually, the, there's that one scene where we see the husband, like, down a pill. We don't know what it is. I'm yeah. sure it's some sort of, of like, stress and reliever. And then at one and, point. Yeah, but then he's like, you know what? I should take another one. And he takes another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it made pill me. Popping. Yeah, I, I, with, uh, it made me think a little bit yeah. about like uh, pharmaceutical and pharmacological cures that that are, we tend to that we brush under the rug. And the film kind of just presumes maybe that maybe they do have a history themselves of either. I mean, because they were prescription bottles too, so there's obviously some sort of. Um, therapist or doctor that has prescribed these pills what are the pills i don't know but anxiety medication perhaps i thought that added to the hereditary theme of the movie you know trying to keep you going on that hereditary theme instead of the witch theme with the family scenes you mean with the with the pill popping with oh, the oh, dad oh, and yeah, the mom. Yeah, yeah. i don't think because charlie didn't pop any and and peter but he was hitting the weed a lot. Which, that's right. That's not that's medicine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like go for it, bud. Why did he start? Like he would say his throat was closing up, similar to Charlie's when she would eat the nuts. So we're meant to believe that the nut allergy is also a product of the demon. But then why was Charlie's? I mentioned so the the demon exits Charlie, goes to Peter. Now Peter's throat starts closing up, but not because of nuts, but because of weed. So we're just meant to believe that under moments of stress or something that happens. Oh, I thought it was like a transference of guilt or something like that. I thought it was because he still has So it could be more psychological rather than a cult. I mean, I guess even if we're having these discussions, I guess the movie did something right. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk, you guys, uh, tilt shift photography and like miniature faking. This is when, uh, so I think something very clever that they did here. So not only are they showing us miniatures, those miniatures that she creates, but they do this uh, this camera trick where they're actually showing us like real life houses, but it's shot in a way that makes it look like a miniature. They do this in the social network during that scene where. The the, the boat one. Yeah, the the, the rowing uh Competition, and then it's been done in a couple movies since. They then. do it a lot in Game Night, my favorite movie of 2018. Wait, oh, wait, really? Explain, yeah. explain it. What do they do? I don't know how they do it. It's called tilt shift photography. I, I they, I'm going to do a, a bastardized version of explaining it. But basically, I think they have a couple cameras uh, next to each other, kind of, and they, they're focused in such a way that it makes everything in focus look like a miniature. I think. Yeah, it has something to do with messing with selective focus. Yeah, and they they tilt them somehow. Yeah. Maybe one of them. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I would so, say so, DPs. If, let if us know any, how, what we're talking about. Yeah, if there are any DPs out there that are listening, fucking at us, please, and let us know. Yeah, please. Really cool. Have you never seen an example of this, Austin? Do you not know what we're talking about? I mean, I know. I think like by watching film analyses and shit like that, where people have talked about it, but I don't understand the mechanism okay. behind it. I don't understand the mechanism either, but I I know what I know it when I see it, and you oh so you can I spot think that, it when you see it. 
yeah, and and once again, just this idea of uh, juxtaposing the life that she's trying to curate with the, uh, you know, like the literal art project she's trying to create is is cool. Is, it is, is cool. I wish I kind of knew. It's one of those things where I look at, it, I'm like, wow, that's cool. It seems cool. It probably some cool stuff went into thinking about it but what does the guy who did it think about it you know i want to know what ari would say about like what that whole motif is all about yeah. you know because i, I, I mean, couldn't if, I, articulate if i had it. to guess i would think it's the puppets on strings thing like you know that that the the, the cult is really puppeteering her whole life whereas she's recreating her life as an artist or okay so like then that. if that's true then do you think that there's some sort of like worlds within worlds or life within life and some sort of like cyclical narrative that also seems to underpin this thing that that everything's ultimately driven by the spiritual forces or whatever in the sense that like like you know at the end of men in black when it's like they're they're living in this world but then this world is really just a marble yeah yeah is it something like that we're like so it's in this miniature house but then obviously that camera comes from a larger world and that that larger world is so it's like almost like a repetition so that even like the smaller worlds are repetitions of like fractals almost. Yeah, I, I'm not taking Synecdoche. it literally. I'm not taking I'm taking yeah. it just as a visual metaphor. I, I guess like whereas the men in black thing, you're supposed to make it like literally their world is inside a marble. Right. But, I want to know who lives in the house that the mini house that this movie is taking place in. Right. No, and see, are they, it's just a, it's just and, a visual that, metaphor. Right. What? Is that is that house that's that this film takes place in, was it a construct from, like, another Tony Collette character? And then can we zoom out from that and zoom out from that and zoom out from that or zoom in? I mean, I guess guess we can. Even the miniatures that she's making, do they come to life? And there's another narrative that's taking place, right? Hey, the levels of hell, too. You know, like, the first level, they're doing the seance. (laughs) The second level is all the scary shit. You don't go in the mom's house. I mean, the mom's room. And then the third level, the, the fucking attic, the mom's dead in there, you know? Seance. Yeah, why was she there? I guess the cult put her back in there so like, she can have more that, spiritual control over the house. That was needed to complete the spell, I guess. Yeah, I wondered that too. Like, what was the purpose of digging up the body and having her bow before uh, payment? Like, why Why was that necessary? Why is her physical body necessary, her headless body? And why was her body headless? Uh, well, Just how payment so, likes it. I, I think that there's yeah, there's like a theme of decapitation that is for some reason important. So that the bird gets decapitated, uh, the kid gets decapitated. I guess grandma gets decapitated. I guess payment just requires decapitation <laughs> in order for him to grace us with his presence. Payment's thing. It's how payment rolls, bro. And was that Charlie's head on the like that, that had the crown on it that they lifted off of? I couldn't tell. Yeah, and then, like, they refer to Peter as Charlie. And this brings up another question, is there's a very short part in the movie, but Annie mentions that her father, her his name was Charles. So, like, Charles, and then the daughter's name is Charlie. Is there any connection here? Is, you know, like, they call her, what is the, the grandmother's name? It was, like, Queen Lee, L-E-I-G-H, or something like that. Was it, like, King Charles, Queen Lee, and then, like, I don't know, they make her Charlie because they want to make her like the vessel for the next coming of Charles, who was the original manifestation of payment until his body, maybe he rebelled and that's when he went on the hunger strike or something. I don't know. It's deep. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do here. (laughs) Speaking of uh, those, speaking of what Ari thinks, you guys know how there are always these moments in movies where you're in a classroom and there's a teacher teaching something and 
it's like, oh, I bet you whatever he's teaching is thematically relevant. Yes. So, like, for example, in Mean Girls, they're talking about uh, Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, Mean Girls is about, like, the usurping of Regina George, the queen. Or in uh, Three O'Clock High, they have that kind of a scene, too. Oh, I don't think I've seen that movie. No, must see. Anyway, keep going. Anyway, so in, so in this movie, there's a discussion of Sophocles' The Women of Trachis. It's not obvious. Uh, I don't know. Like, basically, the discussion is about fate. And if uh, Heracles, who um, basically, through unfortunate circumstance in which his wife ends up, uh, it's, I mean, really, the basically, in the story, uh, Heracles' wife, her name is Dianeria, Dianeria, I'm going to, I fucked that up. Uh, she's, like, tricked. Uh, by a, da- a dying centaur to accidentally kill her husband out of jealousy over him having an affair, thereby, thereby fulfilling a prophecy that her husband uh, would be brought to death by somebody already dead. So th- he asks the students a question of, like, is it more or less tragic that this was foreseen? And they never really get an answer. But uh, I'm, I'm curious if you guys think there's anything more there. Really, the only thing I was able to come with is that both— both the women of Trachis and Hereditary focus on the suffering of a mother character. In the story, it was uh, Deoneria, and in this one, it is Annie. And then both stories have a lot of family strife and family members blaming other family members for the death of their loved ones. Pretty vague, but I don't really think that the whole discussion of fate really fits in with Hereditary. Like, I don't... You don't think fate's a part of this movie? I do. No, I don't think that Annie is at least consciously aware that her son is going to be turned into a demon. I mean, the only way, once again, only subconsciously can you point to any evidence that she wanted to avoid it by, like, you know, her putting the paint thinner on the kids and threatening to put them on fire. But other than that, like, it's not like somebody warned her and said, hey, you know, your family's going to get fucked up. Well, to, to, to me, th- th- like, fate comes into the, uh, the movie where it's like, like the the decapitation sign, you know, did how how could they have planned her to well, get hit? And it's like, but oh, there's an evil force behind it. Well, yeah, fate know? and evil force, I think, is probably different. And the note, the note. But I that think you're mom, supposed to think about that. Then the the mom send the the daughter a note like, you know, sorry for everything, but these rituals work out. You know, remember that note that? Yeah, and she says like, the if this ritual works out, we're all going to be rich yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. 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 Which is fate. Which is, you know, her saying, I've already handled all this. Well, I think if we're talking about fate, and uh, I think maybe now we're giving the movie too much credit, but if if we were to uh, compound the ideas of fate and heredity, I keep on wanting to say hereditary, but it's heredity, you know, and it's like, is your blood or your conditions that you get from your parents or grandparents or whatever, is that your fate? So, I mean, maybe... I, I, don't, I think that is kind of spot on, I think. Yeah, I think that's what the film is explicitly kind of playing with. And and maybe it's as simple, and I don't know, but maybe it's as simple as them choosing this Sophocles play, which is one of Sophocles' most underdeveloped and kind of like least uh, studied plays. Maybe it was because they just didn't want to do like Oedipus, right? Because of, one, the kind of Freudian and the themes that come out of the Oedipus complex and this is a family drama and they wanted to steer away from that even though I'm sure there's some sort of Oedipal reading of this film that would be kind of interesting Um, but they wanted to steer away from that and they wanted to kind of just explore another element of Greek tragedy which deals with this issue of fate versus free will 
Well, there is a scene where, or in that scene, one of the students is, keeps raising his hand and saying, he fucked up because he fucked his mom, when he's obviously thinking of the wrong play because he's thinking of Oedipus. I don't think that's necessarily relevant, but it's interesting that, you know, they still brought in discussions of Oedipus, even when talking about a different Sophocles play. All right, so we're going to move into the mailbag. So this one is from Shane. This is about Eraserhead, our most, re- uh, our most recent episode. Shane says, the way I interpret it, the movie at its core, as you just about said, is about the subjective nightmarish horror of being thrust into parenthood experienced by the protagonist. Uh, I think the way the baby looks and acts is meant to be a subjective representation of what a baby is to someone who doesn't want or love it. For all intents and purposes, a baby doesn't have arms or legs. It's a noise-making blob that needs constant attention, a scourge on your time and ability to have adult relationships, a sperm that got too big and started having its own needs. Man, well, Shane, I hope you, I, sh- I hope you don't have kids. Uh, and he, he ends up by saying, I think Lynch was spot on with his nightmarish depiction of what such a parent must feel like. Yeah, well, I just found my new my new Tinder bio. That's what that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Sperm that just got too big. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. What do you guys think? I, he's a beautiful writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a racer. It's a Highly trip, recommend man. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating because, I mean, we did briefly talk about it, right, that Lynch had just become a father either prior to – crafting this story or during it or whatever but it was i mean clearly he has some sort of anxiety about fatherhood yeah i mean it's it's definitely there this next one is from ken uh this is about john wick he said there's something about the reverence for john wick that reminded me of the introduction of the wolf in pulp fiction sam jackson's reassurance of his skills to travolta gave me the same feeling as many of the characters in john wick i can see that totally yeah, everybody was scared. Well, not scared of the wolf, but it's like, yo, this motherfucker's badass. You know, it's just it's, hyping him up. Yeah, it's almost like what they don't say. It's like, you know, they're in this horrible situation. They need to get rid of this body in, like, minutes, you know, before uh, something bad happens. Or, yeah, before the wife gets back and they ruin this guy's life. And all the shit is hitting the fan. And then Marcellus Wallace just says, don't worry, I'm sending the wolf. And then Sam Jackson's just like, oh, the wolf? We're good then. You know, and yeah. it's kind of like it, it, it's kind of similar to how in John Wick, it's like, uh, you know, whenever they say, well, I hit your son because they just killed John Wick's dog and stole his car. And then the guy's just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and then you just understand the rest. I love this idea, though, that there's like these mythical dudes uh, and it's always inevitably dudes, right, that are the finishers or the erasers or the fixers or whatever. And that there's. It's a constant theme that you see throughout film, literature, myth, whatever. I think it's kind of fascinating. And and I don't know, it kind of like shows that we have this weird obsession with like a killing machine or just like a dude that can come in and fucking clean everything up, whether it's Michael Clayton, who's a fixer, or whether it's the wolf or whether it's whatever the fuck, Keanu Reeves. What did they call him again? Baba Yaga. Yeah, the the boogeyman, or the man who kills the boogeyman. But most importantly, I think, like, in terms of how they do it filmically, like, the the, the way to do it is, like you were saying, what you don't say, and the, the less you do, you know? And you don't even need, need, need to see how the wolf pulls off what he does on his everyday thing, but if, if you just, you know, cut from... 
you cut from them inside the house, then you're all of a sudden you're at the the, the dumpster, you know, them compacting the car. You're like, there's a bunch of steps in there, but you don't need to see them all yeah. to just realize, all right, that guy's a badass and he takes care of shit, and that's all we need to know. It, it reminds me, do you guys know who Chael Sonnen is? He's a former oh, yeah. mixed martial arts fighter. Okay, yeah, I so love Chael... that guy. Yeah, MMA dude. Yeah, so he uh, he got he kicked out. This... He's he's fucking amazing. I, I he's hilarious as a personality, but he runs this like YouTube channel where he comments on fights and MMA news and shit like that. And he talks about this idea that we were obsessed with the uh, like the greatest of all time discussions or like the pound for pound fighter discussions. And he says that's a stupid discussion because really you're never going to see Floyd Mayweather fight I don't know, uh, Anthony Joshua in boxing, or you're never going to see Mighty Mouse Johnson, who's a 125-pound champ. You're never going to see him fight Daniel Cormier, who's now the new heavyweight champ and light heavyweight champ. You're never going to see that, right? He says, so it's like this weird discussion that we have, and he's like, it reminds me of when you're in high school, and you're like, that's the toughest guy in high school. And he says, did you ever see the toughest guy in high school ever fight? And he said, no, because nobody would ever fight him because he was the toughest guy. So no one ever fought him. It was just like this aura that surrounded him right, but but right? but but you're saying that that's a bad thing i think it's no, fun think to it's hypothetically I, make come up with greatest of all times stuff well i mean i just think it's interesting personally I, he he thinks it's a stupid discussion I, i'm just saying that like this idea of like the wolf or the baba yaga or you know the fixer that it's like this almost this myth like you don't even need to see the wolf do anything you don't need to uh, see yeah. baba yaga you just know they have this this myth around them that gives them this transcendent almost like demigod status man I even though of course you do see baba yaga tear shit up but fight floyd mayweather that'd be great just to see him pound <laughs> right? Floyd Mayweather, <laughs> just destroy that dude is a beast. Yeah, but as long as Floyd keeps that keeps it to boxing rules, he's untouchable, right? I don't know. This guy, Anthony Joshua, he's like a he's a different dude. He's huge, man. And with that black dudes with that British accent, <laughs> it's already yeah, hilarious. but he can't hit Floyd. I don't know. I don't. I think this dude could hit Floyd. I think yeah, this dude's different. Okay. Yeah, he's different. You gotta watch his uh, Netflix special. He has a Netflix special. <laughs> a boxer. All right, so this last one is actually from our uh, podcast YouTube channel, Wisecasts. Uh, this is a comment left by Kimosabi Grant on our Matrix Reloaded episode. He says, yes, the movie is about all the things that Jared mentioned in the beginning, free will versus determinism, systems theory, and more. Jared saw the first film as a retelling of Plato's allegory, The Cave. For me, as a black male, I saw the first film as a retelling of Frederick Douglass's The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. So it was natural that I'd see the subsequent film as an exposition on social systems. The machines see systems of oppression one way, and the humans see it another way. One of the primary resolutions of the trilogy is the understanding that there really is no meaningful distinction to be made in the free will versus determinism debate as a free-thinking individual. Systems are fluid things, and the notion that anything binary even exists within the systems at all is absurd. Reloaded is a great but flawed film. I don't care what anyone says. The Merovingian, Architect, Agent Smith, and Oracle scenes have made me have made this film infinitely rewatchable. And just like Jared has implied, my understanding of the film grows with me as a person. How many films can you honestly say that about? People have no courage and are afraid to admit that this film has its value. Wow. I've never heard that analogy. I Dude, mean, I it's, just... it's, I mean, I'm with this guy. I'm, I'm, if Kimosabi is his real name, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with him. Like, the more I watch this movie, especially in this stage of my life, the more rewarding it becomes. <laughs> The Matrix is like the Bible now at this point. Yes, you know? it's like you can interpret it like <laughs> within way, the times. Any yeah. way you want to Yeah. Yeah. Hey, good for him, man. I never thought about Frederick, the life of Frederick Douglass 
with the Matrix. But yeah, totally. Yeah, you can see it. I can see the life of Annie, the little orphan Annie in the Matrix. You know, it's just, you can see anything in the Matrix, man. That's what the Matrix is. Know thyself. Uh, Ryan, as, as the as the resident Matrix Reloaded hater, what do you have to say about that? I disagree firmly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie, that, if I was forced to watch this movie again, like, I would get nothing out of it. I would just be like, uh, all I would say, the, it, it's it, it's more like, like, what is this movie telling me? And it's more like, what were what exactly were they thinking when they were making this scene? That's what I want to know. It, but it's... Well, I mean, I'll but that's what we that, discussed. So who gives a fuck? Well, I mean, we have a good, perhaps educated guess that they were trying to impart certain philosophical discussions onto people. Right. No, but I mean, like, like I, I want to know literally scene for scene, line for line, like, okay, here's what I'm going for here, man, you know, and then break it down for me, Wachowskis. Let's go, you know? Like, I, don't make me guess. <laughs> you know? about that the money, first man. movie was, I felt very straightforward Great. in a good way, yeah. you know? Are there any movies well, that, ambish- is there any, are there any movies that you have, that have grown with you and you maybe Absolutely. started hating and now love for different reasons? Like what? Absolutely. Well, I mean, like we've talked about like 2001, like the sure. first time we watched that, like we were kids and it, what what the fuck is that when you're 10 and then you yeah. watch it, you know, you're 18 and it's something different. You watch it when you're 30, it's something different, you know, like, like completely different, like yeah. experience, you know, uh, so that's a good example. But I, I can't think of one where I literally like I fucking hated that movie. And then I, I kind of turned. I remember, you know, Fred, the movie is one we cite as <laughs> one like where we were like, that movie's got to fucking suck. And then we watched it and we're like, that movie was awesome. But we it's not like we had seen it before. Yes, That is the Fred Figglehorn movie that Ryan and I are referring to. <laughs> yeah, we, we love the Fred movie. We love the Fred movie because it couldn't have cost very much money. And they actually built a pretty complex world that takes place on a cul-de-sac <laughs> yeah. which we were very impressed with amazingly with. high stakes <laughs> yeah it's like, like this a... old school youtuber who basically just, he's basically like the he's like a the... 12 year old pretending to be a six year old with a high-pitched voice and he's basically like the modern uh ernest b Worrell, p Worrell. <laughs> yeah you know like ernest goes to camp and shit yeah yeah and john cena's his dad john cena's his dad before before john cena was a meme yeah absolutely yeah wow how old is this he stopped doing YouTube in this what? This like 2010, two- I want to say. Yeah, he was the first YouTuber to hit a million subscribers, so it was early YouTube. Wow. Hey, it's Brad! It's my yeah. old employer, by the way, too. That's yeah. I worked there for him before serious? I worked here. Yeah, <laughs> that was my first YouTube job. Is he, Cal- is he in California? Is he based yeah, in yeah, he lives here. But okay. I think he also got like a Nickelodeon show after a while, and I think he kind of cashed out. And, and now no, like, he has his, he still has a channel. He's still on. Just you know. Oh, it's like a vlog channel, though. Yeah. He's not playing Lucas, the Fred. The Lucas char- channel. His name is Lucas. He plays a character named Fred. But now that he's like a mature adult, he doesn't want to do the six-year-old anymore. Right. So he just has a vlog. Um, anyway, cool. So that's gonna wrap it up today, guys. Just want to remind you, please check out Black Stage. Uh, it's gonna be up today. So uh, check out the link in the description to check out Greg's new podcast. Greg, any closing words you want to impart on potential black stage fans? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. It's uh, comedians talking shit. And if you're, like, interested in doing stand-up, you're interested in comedy, we're going to be talking about that. You know, talking about the writing process, talking about how it feels to go up at open mics, how it feels to do big rooms, small rooms, meeting celebrity comics. Sometimes it's not cool to meet your hero. You know, shit like that. It's, it's uh, really interesting and fun. Yeah. Cool. All right, where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? 
Uh, you can find me on YouTube and Facebook at Ryan Shorts. Just released a, uh, released comedy videos every week. Released one about firework video reaction videos. So I re react to firework videos. Written by Incredibles 2's Screenslaver. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greg. Uh, Greg the Grouch on Twitter. Uh, Greg Comedy on Instagram. I put a lot of comedy videos on my Instagram now. Check it out. And great paintings. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. I get down. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I, paint, uh, I got a website, gregedwardsart.com. Check out my digital art. Are, are you going to be in season two of Corporate? I don't know. The guys haven't hit me up yet. I'm, I, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I hope too. So. That, was, that was awesome. Yeah. All right, Austin. Uh, yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I also do a philosophy podcast if you're interested. It's called Owls at Dawn. You can just Google it or you can just find me on Twitter and you can find our shit. Cool. Hit me up. Instagram at Wisecrack. Uh, also Instagram at Father of Woody for my personal dog photos. And uh, yeah, cool. And so that's it for today. Next week we are, I don't even think we've made a decision next week. I'm sorry, guys. We're really bad at making decisions early on, but yeah. Uh, We've got a special guest next week, so that's going to be fun. So I will see you guys we next week. Do we know our special guest? I do, yeah, but it's a special guest, oh, so I'm not going to tell him. Secret, Secret guest. guest. Uh, I'll give you a hint. He's a YouTuber. So It's a he and he's a YouTuber. Yeah, so it's only <laughs> one of a couple million people. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. Signing off. Thanks for watching or listening. Whatever. Goodbye from Hollywood, California, and hail Paymon! <laughs> Peace. <laughs>